Hello, HR professionals and business leaders. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Today's topic is all about multi-generational workforces. And um, in, in case you don't know it, uh, you probably have uh, multiple generations working for you in your organization right now. And uh, that presents a bunch of different uh, challenges, but opportunities as well. So we're gonna unpack that a little bit during this episode. You know, for most employers, providing health insurance is it's a given, you're gonna do it. And especially since 88% of the workforce sees it as necessary, uh, a, a sort of a, a prerequisite for their employment. And so while medical insurance remains the, the top uh, or the most requested benefit, there are some surprising differences between generations when it comes to the type of health coverage that they, they value. And you know the bottom line is this, a traditional one-size-fits-all approach to benefits and how we communicate our benefits, it just doesn't work anymore. So uh, interesting fact, 72% of employees agree that the ability to customize benefits increases their loyalty to their employer. Uh, and so uh, does your current benefit strategy live up to that expectation? You gotta ask yourself that. I'm really, really pleased. I got a couple of colleagues here from One Digital in Connecticut joining me. Uh, first, Emily Bailey, who's the managing principal of our Connecticut office. Uh, and along with Emily, we have Eric Pomroy, who is a business development executive. And they're here on the podcast today to talk about effectively navigating multi-generational workforces. So Emily and Eric, how you doing? Great, how are you, Jeff? Good. Excellent, thanks for having us. Yeah. Appreciate it. This could get interesting. We've already concluded it's a Friday afternoon. We're all being a little silly already, <laughs> but- uh, We'll so, have a good so, time. So let's have some fun. That's good. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so listen, first off, if you're gonna develop a multi-generational approach to benefits, uh, you have to make sure and, and be clear uh, on, on what the workforce demographic looks like. So, so Eric, why don't we start with you? What, what are we working with here? Yeah, so really good question. And I always think, I always almost wanna start answering this question with defining a little bit why the multi-generational workforce is even important to begin with and why it's such a buzzword today, right? Mm -hmm. And so Pew Research has a really cool graph out there that talks about multi-generational workforce between 1994 and 2018. And in 1994, you look at that, that graph and it shows that there are three generations in the workforce. Today, there are five. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, talking about a multi-generational workforce is so important because you've got traditionalists that are still hanging around in the workforce. And then you've got these Gen Zers and Centennials that are now entering the workforce, you know, right out of school. So just a quick definition um, to your earlier question, what are we working with? So the traditionalists, these are folks born between 28 and 1945. They're the smallest part of the workforce. These are folks that are, uh, you know, really coming out of the Great Depression, very traditional, dedicated uh, workers. And then you have baby boomers. We all know that that was, at the time, the largest generation um, ever to come about in American history. Very service-oriented, uh, very dedicated as well. Then you've got your Gen Xers. They're the second largest workforce. They're between as we define, we go off what Pew says, um, between 1965 and 1980. And um, as I mentioned, they're the second largest workforce. They're really adaptable, quite independent. They're very creative usually. Um, and then we've got our millennials, right? And, and as we define them between 1980 and 1996. And they now are the largest percentage of 
the workforce. And millennials, I think, are an interesting one because they're the first ones when we think about benefits that don't look at benefits with a traditional lens because they weren't, they entered the workforce after, um, you know, the introduction of things like high deductible health plans. They're used to rising costs of healthcare where employers have to get really creative. Yeah. So they've never had a traditional plan this, that, that I probably at one point in my life had. Right. Uh, you know, an old <laughs> comprehensive major med plan. Yes. Yeah. These indemnity plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you see what is this? I have, to re I have to submit a claim and get reimbursed. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so, so I think that's sort of the cutoff between Gen X and, and, and millennials, where you see the millennials aren't accustomed to what, uh, what we've seen in the benefits arena over the last four or five decades. And then certainly the centennials. Yeah. Right. And I think the interesting dynamic between millennials and centennials is, um, like, uh, like millennials, centennials are very native to technology, but they're also native to social media, communicating from a very young age via social media mechanisms. So is centennial the same thing as Gen Z? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, right. exactly. It's our community keep track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think really when you look at the centennials in particular, they don't do paper when they communicate at all. They're not yeah. accustomed to that. So we obviously have to keep that in mind when we talk about how do we communicate these benefits to um, any benefits program to employees, um, you know, moving forward. Yeah. So you said the, the, that the, um, the millennials are the, the largest portion of the workforce. Now, do you have any, like, how, how, what percent of the workforce do you think the millennials comprise of? Over, over a third, safe to say? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. All right. When there's five generations and one comprises over a third, then, you know, it, it, it's clear that they're a, a driving force in your, your organization today likely yeah yeah so uh you're looking at uh probably close to 50 percent, closer to 50 percent. so of the workforce is, uh, today yeah you're getting there wow you're getting there, so yeah okay. but we but the point is you can't you, we can't ignore everybody else right you got five generations so, uh, you know so wh why is this wh why should employers even care about the fact that okay we've got five generations in the workforce now they're all very sort of distinct and what's important to them what what why should employee? No, it's a really good question. And I think if you look back to my, my previous comment before about, so 1994, we got three generations in the workforce. The, the difference between those generations as it relates to benefits is not all that substantial, right? You've got sort of indemnity type of products. You've got, you know, employers paying 100% of benefit programs in play uh, that are in place. Um, and, and benefits aren't really all that important, all that aren't all that, they're important, but they're not all that different, right, for the generations. Now you've got technology that have sort of almost made the generations be more different. So the traditionalists versus the centennials, that that gap is so substantial. Yeah. Whereas perhaps you can make an argument that Gen X versus traditionalists isn't all that substantial. Right, right, right. Yeah. So technology has kind of exponented or created a, a deeper chasm, I think, in terms of the different generations and how they they communicate, and then certainly the the rapid changes in benefits. Of, you know, yeah, made that to be true. So I would add to that just to say, um, you know, I think one of the reasons that employers really are caring about this more than ever before is it's a really competitive labor market. You know, we're seeing a, an economy that is really surging right now. And, you know, you can venture to guess that all of your top talent right now is being approached in some form or fashion by a recruiter, by a competitor. And if you're not catering to the needs of those workforces, um, if you're not thinking about what types of fringe benefits are going to keep your talent and attract the top talent in the market, then you're going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why employers who historically have just said, you know what, 
I don't really care what my demographic makeup is. These are the benefits we provide and that's it. They're starting to say, oh my God, I need to make sure that I'm catering to the needs of these populations because if I'm not, my top talent is going to be looking at an employer who is. Mm -hmm. um, and so how I, are those I, recruiters reaching out? Oh my gosh, technology, right? right? So, so you have a, a, also a, a surging economy and you know umpteen ways that your employees can be targeted by your competitors. So that's yeah. another great point where you know I think the the world and the labor market has evolved to a point where you know there's a lot of different methods of communication. LinkedIn has become a huge um, you know tool from a recruitment standpoint, and you know that's where these younger generations are are every day. So. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're not thinking about what you need to be doing to cater to those generations, both on the younger end of the spectrum and on the older end of the spectrum, um, you're putting your talent at risk and you're putting your business at risk. Right. You've got to have something to offer that's meeting the needs of, 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 of each person that you're trying to recruit, mm -hmm. no matter which of those five generations that they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what about employee perception of the value of, of their benefits? How does that factor in here? Yeah, so it's a good question. Honestly, I was actually thinking um, about a, a recent experience I had. So my dad, uh, he's 59 at this point in time, and my brother, who's 25, my brother just finished his degree in occupational therapy. He's getting a job, real job for the first time in his life. And my dad's, you know, 59, really values the benefits. Both of them, and I love them dearly, completely clueless when it comes to the total cost of health insurance. So they compare it to say, hey, my brother's name is Ryan. And uh, Ryan goes, yeah, it's going to cost me $25 weekly for my benefits. And my dad goes, wow, that's a really good deal. That's really cheap. I'm like, well, $25 for what is the biggest question, right? Oh, you guys, you get cheap benefits, it sounds like. That's really good. <laughs> and my, my dad's coming from the perspective of it costs something like $250 every other week for his benefits. But he's not considering the fact that he's right now as a family plan. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what style plan he has, whether it be this platinum style or the bronze yeah, style. Your dad's plan, right? I am not. Thank you for asking about that. <laughs> and, um, and then you have my brother who says, well, $25, isn't that pretty good? Right? Yeah. You wouldn't say to someone, hey, $12 for peanuts. That's a pretty good deal, right? You'd be like, you, your first question would be like, well, what kind of peanuts? How, how much? much? How many peanuts? Right. <laughs> Where are you buying them? Is that at uh, Fenway Park? Yeah. Or is that 50 pounds of it at uh, you know, Costco? Or a lifetime supply. You'd ask those questions, right? right? And so I, I think we oftentimes, when we communicate benefits, people are very clueless because of the lack of transparency mm. around understanding, well, what is that total cost? So if, I, if I'm an employer and I'm communicating these benefits, I really want to put into perspective, what on average is a standard plan look like? So how good is this goal plan relative to peer organizations that offer health insurance programs and provides perhaps some benchmarking data. So employees like understand like what, how does this plan compare to the average plan that's out there? That's step one. And then two is what's the total cost of this plan? How much does this total thing cost? And then how much is the employer paying versus what the employee paying? Yeah. And then how does this compare to like market averages, whether it be industry specific or just employers perhaps in the area, right? Providing that perspective because everyone knows what they should maybe pay for a pack of small pack of peanuts right so you got an idea maybe it's a dollar two dollars depending on where you are but people truly don't understand what that the total cost of a health insurance plan is and i think it's incumbent on employers to communicate that in simple terms of employees understand the full picture i think that's a really good point eric and i think that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we hear from employer organizations these days is that they feel that their employees don't value yeah. their benefits and yeah. 
I think some of that might be because they don't understand. Right. And it's because we just have not been very transparent about the cost of these benefits. And, you know, I think a big movement has happened over the past few years where employers are sharing that information. You know, they're giving during open enrollment or, you know, at some point during the year, an education around, hey, you know, this is the total cost of our plan. And based on other employers like us, we rank very high, high mm -hmm. in the benefits that we offer. And just surely communicating that and having that information out there um, can give your employees a lot more perspective on you know, this, this value that you're giving them because you know, it's a lot of money that we spend on these things every month and every year. And you really need to take some credit where credit's due um, you know, for the value of your plan. And so unless you share it, people just don't know. That's a, that's a really great point. Yeah, and I think, look, the total comp statements, I think people make fun of them a little bit, like, ah, total compensation, no one reads those statements. I think those actually still play a role. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the benefits administration portals out there allow employees to, add the, with a click of a mouse, to pull down their total comp statement, like in an instant. Or HR can obviously, during certain periods of the time, communicate those out and have a push campaign around to remind people about mm -hmm. it's not just your, 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 uh, your salary plus any bonuses or yeah. commissions, right? It's it's all the, the value of the benefits and no, monetizing. Yeah, no matter how you communicate it, remember we come back to one of the goals of uh, of an employee benefits program is attracting and retaining talent. And if your employees aren't ad adequately valuing the benefits that you're giving them, does doesn't that uh, negatively impact that goal of, of, of retention? Right. Yeah. If I had no idea that, that peanuts actually cost money, right? then I won't, I'm not going to value it if you give me peanuts. Right. Mm -hmm. But I inherently know what the cost of peanuts is, so I appreciate when you give me a pack of peanuts. I don't know why we're using peanuts as an example. It came to my I mind. Think, I think you must be hungry. Well, you know, I, yeah. Yes. I, I think Eric is always hungry. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so let's dig into that. So how is this multi-generational workforce really impacting uh, benefits and how do we make sure our benefits are addressing the needs of each of these generations? So from a communication process, I guess maybe we'll start with that one. Um, you know, um, I, I, the traditional approach of handing out forms during the open enrollment, paper forms, and then asking employees to make their benefit selections via that process, that, that, that can't be in place really for any size organization any longer. Do, do the traditionalists want that? I think the traditionalists um, are comfortable with that. Mm. I think the traditionalists are also comfortable with flipping on their cable TV and uh, or ordering off Amazon, many of them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think it takes, when you're introducing technology, it's not a question of, are you going to do it? And are we gonna cater and offer paper? But how are we going to do it? At what cadence are we gonna make these changes so that our boomers and perhaps our traditionalists are comfortable with adapting with the new times a little bit. Yeah. Right. I asked that question though, because like, you know, my mom's a traditionalist. Sure. Right? And, and uh, or maybe she's a boomer actually. I don't know. But either way, on the phrase. She's, she's got a phone. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. She's got a she's got a, a, smartphone. a, a smartphone. She's got a computer. She's mm -hmm. online. She's on Facebook. She's like, you know, I think we sometimes will think, oh, the the, the older the traditional boomers don't want the technology and i would argue that frank that they do perhaps not as much as they don't expect it as much as a, a millennial or a gen z but uh but that's how they're living today too mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i think it's 82 percent of the population with a smartphone right? but i i kind of shift back to looking at things on under the lens of how we buy things right yeah. so 
um, were coming from generations who were more comfortable going to a physical store, talking to a salesperson, brick and mortar, mortar, feeling and touching something, being explained how something works by a salesperson or by a human being, that human touch element. And we're shifting to a world where most of our purchases today are made using technology, whether it be on your smartphone, on the internet, Um, We are buying more things online than we never thought we'd do before. I mean, Mm -hmm. people shop for cars online where you never would do that years ago. Mm -hmm. You would go to a car dealership and speak to a salesperson. Um, You know, now I think even the boomer generation and the, you know, even, even the, you know, the older generations and that, the traditionalists, they're comfortable researching these things online um, where they wouldn't have been before. So it's, it's not necessarily just about, you know, the, the way you're doing open enrollment, but it's the shift in self-service. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's okay to post a, a document that explains your benefit package. And if that, if that person wants to print it and have it to look at, that's fine, but they're more comfortable self-servicing because mm-hmm. that's kind of how we're purchasing things today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's one way that it's evolved. But I think the other important point is that it's not one size fits all. Right. You know, we cannot ignore the needs and wants of any particular generation in this approach. So it's it's more offering that technology platform that might suit some people's needs, but offering the option to, hey, print out the brochure if you'd rather look at it that way. Um, and then maybe offer a telephonic support line or offer a office hours for you to come and ask a question if that's how you're most comfortable. Um, so I think it's just making sure that you're accounting for each of the separate generational needs or wants and not necessarily excluding or discriminating towards one or another. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So communication. So that's that. But what about the benefits themselves? So how has this, how does this impact the benefits that employers offer to their employees? Yeah. Well, I think first off, when we look at things like high deductible health plans and then uh, tax advantage products like health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts, again, you look at your multi-generational workforce and they don't have any preconceived notions about what a benefits program should look like. So I think uh, working with them at an early stage to help them understand from a financial perspective how valuable those types of products are and how they, need, they can become disciplined with putting money away and say a health savings account as a rainy day fund for when they, they do need to access care. Mm-hmm. These millennials generally, younger healthy millennials, yeah. aren't accessing a ton of care. And they're generally not thinking about the fact that, mm-hmm. it's, that someday, because when I was in my 20s, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, being in my 50s seemed like uh, was never so distant. But here I am in my 50s. <laughs> and knock on wood, I still don't use a lot. But at some point, you know, you're going to utilize health. At some point in your life, you're going to utilize health care. It's a just, you have to. Yeah. And, and look, millennials and, and, and centennials, they're also not used to pension programs, right? So it's defined contribution programs that they are native to, not defined benefit programs. And so there's actually a lot of studies out there that suggest that millennials and centennials are a little bit more financially disciplined than their older generations because they didn't have the luxury of having a pension program. It's always been on them, the responsibility to save for the future. So offering products um, such as a health savings account type of style plan, I think is very important yeah. um, as an option for millennials mm-hmm. right? Um, in particular. And to that end, Eric, I think that's a, you bring up a good point. I, I just, I feel like, you know, if you haven't, read, listened, watched, or observed a presentation yet about millennials in the workforce, you've probably been under a rock. You're right. But a good, a good perspective is, yes, millennials are approaching 50% of the workforce, but there's still 50% that are not millennials, mm-hmm. that are still needing support in getting ready to retire. We can't ignore that mm-hmm. there are generations that still need a lot of help 
preparing for retirement or you know dealing with things at, at later stages in their career. Mm -hmm. So you need to have equal emphasis on each of those needs, which is again you know the the opportunity for choice. So you know offering ample products and solutions that solve for both you know, your pre-retirement phase and early entry into the workforce when you're just starting out your career, it's important to have both. And it's important to have good education tools that explain all of them. So, you know, that that's another uh, really important. Yeah, concern. so for an example, right, a practical aspect or application of that may be looking at, hey, I'm an employer with 100 employees and I offer, say, three health insurance options. And those three health insurance options are, are varying different products, right? They're not the same. They're not all on top of each other. They have a different pricing schedule. Um, and one may be an HSA. One is a traditional copay with a high deductible on hospital services. And one is a very rich sort of gold or platinum style plan with copays on, on all services. And having that, that selection of options uh, makes a lot of sense, I think, for an employer to meet the needs of, of, of everyone. Right. And that may not sound eye-opening, um, certainly, but I think one of the other things that we look at when we talk about, um, you know, millennials and centennials in particular is these products, we often call them voluntary insurance programs, like critical illness programs and accident policies, where if you have an accident, you're paid a lump sum. Those can be great for those millennials that want to take on a little bit more risk, have a high deductible style plan, and they get paid a lump sum to help them with that deductible exposure if they, you know, um, have to go to the hospital for a broken bone or something of that nature. Right. Right. And that's option, right? And an employer doesn't have to foot the bill for a program like that. It can be on the employee to make that choice. Yeah. And I think that choice is, you know, one of the things we're talking about is very important. Yeah. And those wouldn't be exclusive to centennials and millennials. No, you know, no. You know, right. Um, any, any, any workforce could use those. Uh, but something that might be more, it, it probably would be more important to the millennials and centennials would be, uh, now we, there, there are um, student loan assistance programs. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that, 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 you know, when I entered the workforce, there were, there were no such programs, relatively new thing. Those, those are products that have entered the market to address the particular needs of this multi-generational workforce. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talk about some of these, these students coming out of school with a lot of debt, they're starting work for the first time. Um, and they perhaps majored in English, right? And so they didn't major in finance and they're coming out of school with four or five different independent student loans that equate to $35,000 at varying interest rates. And so these student loan programs, it doesn't have to cost the employer money, but they can provide some assistance yeah. where they can help educate that employee to say, look, here's how you would tackle this. You either consolidate all the loans into a lower interest rate, or you hit the highest cost loan first. And perhaps the employer can provide some assistance by allowing the money to be taken out of a paycheck. So employees are a little bit more disciplined mm -hmm. when it's taken out of a paycheck and go towards those loans. And right. so, it doesn't mean, you know, I know a lot of CFOs probably shaking their boots a little bit when they hear about these programs. It doesn't mean that the employer has to financially contribute towards these programs. It just means that they're providing some assistance because we know that millennials, they want that assistance from, from their employer. Yeah. So, but that's a good point. You know, when you're thinking about, um, you know, to my point earlier, this is a very competitive labor market. And when you want to recruit different types of generations into your workforce, mm -hmm. so like that's a lot of what I've been hearing lately from both of our customers and other employers in this market. Um, you know, if, if you're recruiting and you're trying to recruit into these younger, newer generations that are entering the workforce, they're asking for these type of things. Not only are they asking for, hey, do you have a student loan assistance repayment program? Mm -hmm. But they are asking for very different things than the prior generations have asked for. For example, you know, it's not uncommon for you to be um, interviewing a, a younger candidate and for them to ask, you know, what is your organi organization's philosophy or strategy around charitable giving? 
or, you know, do you allow time off for volunteer work? Or, you know, what is your, do you have a flexible work environment or work day? Uh, they're wanting things that are, you know, just in the very basic sense of an employee-employer relationship, they're wanting a different style and structure to that feel than ever before. So I think as an employer, you have to think about how you might need to adapt your workplace and just even the primary functions of your jobs if you want to recruit in those generations. And that's um, you know, becoming more and more important, especially as the labor market becomes more competitive. Mm, yeah, 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 great, great, great point. What other sort of benefit trends um, are we seeing out there that you know that, that you could sort of tie back to these multi-generational needs? Yeah, you know, I think telemedicine is a big one. You know, we mm -hmm. talk about this all the time. I mean, so now, right, it, it, um, for most products that are fully insured, right, the insurance carriers offer telemedicine baked into the program, um, but it's often totally underutilized, yeah. right? I mean, utilization statistics you see like five, six percent. If you're lucky, five, six percent, yeah. right? Um, and it's because I think people don't understand what it looks like. So I've actually heard from a couple of employers that they do a great, great thing. And so um, <laughs> I've seen programs where employees actually, the HR communicates either during open enrollment or any point during the year. They say, hey, look, employees, come into my office or send me a pic or post a pic on Instagram of a downloaded app, telemedicine app. And if you do that, you'll either get into, entered into a raffle or I'll give you a $5 you know, Starbucks gift card or something like that. Logic being is when it's 2 a.m. and your child has pink eye and they wake up in the middle of the night and you don't want to go to the, the minute clinic, right? You want to do something from the comfort of your own home. Mm. Figuring out how to download that darn app, right? Put in your credentials when the baby's screaming, that's difficult. But if you got it ready to go, much more apt to, to utilize the service, right? Mm. So programs like that and a simple communication campaign to get people, hey, here's how telemedicine works. Here's how you'd access it beforehand right and here's when you'd access it may get people a lot more comfortable with because it it's convenient and it's low-cost care yeah and it's great care oftentimes are there certain are, are there generations that um that are more apt to use <clears throat> telemedicine than, than others or or not or, or does it really like i would guess a traditionalist would think a consultation over the phone with my doctor mm. That's outrageous. Right. I'm Skyping my tonsils right now. <laughs> right. No, there's no way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm making a bad assumption because mm -hmm. I just, I was the one that said, Hey, you know, my mom's got a smartphone and, and all of her friends do too. So, you know, I could be making a bad assumption. No, I don't think you're off the mark. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think there's exceptions to every generalization, but right. no. And I, I think, so that's why sort of that approach to say, look, we encourage you to download the app for telemedicine mm. coupled with the, the whole dialogue around here's the value between emergency room care versus minute clinic care because you don't necessarily yep. trust telemedicine perhaps as a, as a boomer or traditionalist. Yep. I think having that full conversation yeah. so that you meet the needs of the traditionalist perhaps in the boomers around yeah. minute clinic access and, or, or urgent care access, whatever yeah. you call it. I think the word expectations, the key <clears throat> here, that's the operative word because so maybe a traditionalist or a baby boomer will use telemedicine, maybe that, but, but it's, but do they expect it? Whereas I think these days a millennial, that's true. right? It's an expectation. It's an expectation that mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to do almost anything in my life, including having a medical consultation <clears throat> using my phone, mm -hmm. right? Without having to get in my car and drive somewhere and do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know? I've had conversations even with my friends. I'll be honest, mm -hmm. where I said like, here, here, 
I don't know how telemedicine has come up naturally in a conversation, I guess, because I'm a benefits nerd, but telemedicine has come up and they're like, that's kind of cool. Like, I want that. I'm like, you work at the Hartford, you have it. <laughs> and they're like, oh, right. Oh, no. oh okay. Yeah. Right. And We're talking about relatively intelligent people. And it hasn't been, but so it probably hasn't been communicated if we go back to communication. Well, communicated effectively or. Well, or it has been communicated. But we know that this is the world of data, right? We get yeah. hit from all different angles. Mm -hmm. So how many times and how creatively has it been communicated? And how easy is it to, to use, mm -hmm. particularly sure. if you haven't taken the time to download the app and get yourself registered ahead of time? Yeah. So ease of use is important. I think it's still a developing product, if you will, uh, because everyone recognizes it's, it's underutilized. But uh, that's telemedicine. And, 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 and you talked about, you know, what, what else? What else do... do you know, to have, how else have benefits changed? You know, I, I would just say that, um, again, it's the, the variety and choice. You know, I think there is now a, a need to be offering more variety and choice in whatever benefits you choose to offer. And so, you know, to your point before, Eric, I don't think that that means you need to be nervous about cost escalating because a lot of these things can be completely voluntary where you're just offering it and you're offering communication around it and away from place to purchase it. But things like accident insurance, critical illness insurance, hospital indemnity, you know, there's a lot of even pet insurance. Pet insurance has been a very big, um, you know, entrance into the workplace in the past few years where a lot of employees want and expect pet insurance. You know, it's something that mm. um, has become more and more common and we're seeing a big, a big desire for it. And I think the moral of the story here is you have to offer a variety of options. And, and to do that, you need to make some smart choices and investments in technology to help you get the job done. Yep. Because offering this amount of variety and choice means that you know, unless you're willing to take on a lot of extra administrative burden, you've got to outsource that, whether it be to a, a tech platform, a Ben Admin platform. Um, you know, there are a ton of them out there today. But that's become an integral part of the way we get our job done. Yeah, absolutely. What about EAP programs? Mm. You, know? you know, that's a good point, Eric, and I'm glad you brought that up because I do, I would know, I would comment that I think one of the big differences in the younger generations is they don't have as much of a stigma around mental health yeah. as the older generations have. Yeah, thank you know, God. They are, yeah, and, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but it makes me wonder if if we're finally getting to a point where we're going to see more uptake in things like EAP utilization, because historically that's a benefit that it's it's kind of offered. It's not publicized nearly enough. But with these newer generations coming into the workplace and making up such a big portion of it, not having that necessarily, you know, stigma associated with talking about mental health. Um, you know, I hope that that is increasing the utilization of those things. And you know, I, I know that that's an expectation of, of, you know, these younger generations is, you know, what type of benefits or supports or considerations are you giving as an employer for mental health? You know, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But. Yeah, no, I think it, it's spot on. You know, I, I, I just want to come back to, kind of bouncing around, but coming back to EAP because it does in telemedicine because the, the, there's a new generation of telemedicine now that includes behavioral health, mental health consults and therapy telephonically or, or via Skype as well. So, you know, again, it's an example of products now that are that have adapted and are adapting to meet this expectation of, I should be able to do what I need to do from the comfort of my own home, mm -hmm. right? And, and hopefully that will increase the utilization mm -hmm. of, of those kinds of uh, services.
you know, to that point, Jeff, I think, uh, you know, one of the other things that's a notable that has changed a lot in our business, and it's, it's worth mentioning, is the relationship between your members and the physicians, right? You know, the, the older generations had a very solid and strong relationship and trust in their primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. That was the source of most advice they got from a medical perspective. Right. Maybe and, second to their priest. Right. right. Yeah. And so that, that was a very, you know, treasured and trusted, sure. valued relationship. Yeah. And, um, you know, and really that has completely evolved. You know, you look at the younger generations, and they most of the time don't have a primary care yeah. physician. They're getting their primary care through convenience care clinics, through walk-ins, through telemedicine. You know, they don't value that relationship the way that it was in the past. Mm -hmm. And you know, that in and of itself is really changing the way that um, you know these generations look at benefits too. Yeah. Um, gone are the days where there were gatekeeper plans and you needed a referral. You know that that doesn't even you know resonate today with these new generations. So you know they're looking for convenient ways to access what they need and want. Right. Um, so that just goes back to offering a multitude of different options and great ways to communicate them so that when they need them, they know that they're there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's really it's evolved the the way that we interact with the medical community. And I think these these carriers and these vendors and, and even healthcare providers are seeing that change and they're now putting out different access points to your point, virtual behavioral health visits. That's yeah. like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that would have sounded like a crazy idea. And now what a brilliant way to bring the care to people in a more convenient setting the way they want to have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that also, the other thing too, is that I think that leads to this expectation of uh, at least also uh, pricing transparency. Yeah. Mm. So, so today we're all used to now, if I want to, if I want to shop for something, anything mm -hmm. that I could go and I could go on Amazon or whatever, name the, and, and I can cross compare and shop and there's all sorts of transparency and I could, and I could look at quality ratings and all that stuff. And that is now spilling into the healthcare mm -hmm. uh, world and delivery system as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're there yet, but we're getting to a point where it is becoming much more transparent. I mean, you know, there's there's so many things that we can go online and shop for and, and find out the price on instantly. You know, I would say that we're getting there where there are some technology platforms. Most of the, you know, major health insurance carriers do offer some kind of a price tool on their website. So you can look up if you're having knee surgery, how much that might cost. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of work to be done around those tools. I think, you know, when it comes to shopping for the quality side of things, that's where we still need more data and more valid sources of data. But from a price perspective, now you can go online if you're prescribed a medication and look up what the price of that drug is at CVS versus Walgreens versus mm -hmm. Walmart versus Costco. I mean, there's a multitude of different ways that you can price compare things from a medical you know, and health perspective. Um, what I think we still have a lot of work to done, be done in is the quality side of things. Mm -hmm. So that's just my- Yeah, opinion. I would agree. I think one of the fundamental problems with healthcare, just in general, and, and why we have such a great problem in our country is because the demand is inelastic, right? We need it when we need it, at, regardless of the price, because we're talking about sometimes life or death, and the uh, information is not readily available right? Information around the quality metrics that you mentioned, the mm -hmm. pricing, et cetera, which is different from the way we buy anything else. Yeah. And for the most part, in right. our economy, exactly to your point. Right. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, making a lot of strides in the, in the right areas around the, the transparency, the information transparency 
and what the cost estimates might be for X type of care. The quality metrics are getting there as well. There's a lot of vendors out there that employers yeah. can purchase separately that provide that information, but they're not ubiquitous, right? Unfortunately, right? It's not, it's not commonplace yet, but there's certainly a lot of things employers can do. So I guess the bottom line for me is talk about, well, how, has, how have benefits themselves changed as we've introduced these new generations, we're now five generations in the workforce, is that I think there used to be a day when it would be like, you got your health insurance, maybe dental insurance, and life insurance, right? And it sounds to me like what we're saying is you've really got to, you've got to expand the benefit of options that you're offering employees because everyone's got a lot different needs beyond those three traditional employer-paid benefits right um yeah and i and i would say so for our listeners uh on right now if you're sitting there you know in your car uh driving on the highway and saying dismissing some of our comments because you're saying look i'm a 40 or 35 employee manufacturing company in central connecticut i can't do what these guys are talking about and that's not true at all right um these technology platforms as emily was talking about allow a small employer to offer a lot of different programs in an administratively efficient way. Right. You know? Right. Um, and so, please, you know, definitely don't dismiss yourself to be able to offer all these things that your millennials, they kind of require, because mm. we're talking, they're getting poached yeah. because the labor force is tight right now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It matters. I think, you know, in a competitive labor market, it is so important to be thinking about the way you recruit and the way you retain talent and you know what their wants and needs are and, and looking at it from multiple different lenses so you know one of the, the exercises that we've been doing recently that i think is so eye-opening is looking at the demographics of a population and seeing you know the demographics of the senior leadership team versus the rest of the organization you know who is making decisions on these type of uh you know products choices offerings and who are these decisions actually benefiting and are we taking into account all of the different needs and wants of the audience, right? So just being thoughtful around not not ignoring any particular element here, um, but touching on all of them and investing wisely in, in platforms and technology that will help you do it in an efficient way. That could segue into, so, so the other question is, all right, we've got all these new types of benefits that you can offer your employees, but what are the, what are some potholes we need to look out for, some, some uh, benefit concerns of HR managers and employers need to be on the lookout for? Maybe one of them is, is that you can't be discriminatory in any way in, in, in what you're offering to, to, you know, certain people generationally or what, 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 what do we need to be concerned about or on the lookout for as benefit managers? Um, a couple of things. So certainly um, not favoring highly compensated individuals, right? Not classing out um, if it's um, for uh, similarly situated employees. Uh, I think a lot of HR professionals, especially if you look at like the Connecticut marketplace or the Northeast, I think we're kind of accustomed to, to that and keeping an eye out to make sure we're not discriminating against certain classes of, of employees because of, the labor laws already in place in our respective states. Um, but that's certainly one of the things to just keep an eye out for is not discriminating against any one particular uh, class of employee. The know? other thing I would comment on is we've talked a lot about choice, 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 and that you want to offer lots of choice, but there is a such thing as too much choice. Sure. Um, I think, you know, sometimes you think about, oh, I, well, we want to offer a lot of choice, but then, you know, you go from two, three benefit plans that you're offering to seven. 
and that becomes cumbersome, you know? So people want choice, but there's a limit to the number of choices that you should put out there. So yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I think, right, we kind of find, I think a lot of the times a happy medium is say I'm in a hundred employee companies along those lines, you know, two to three benefit program health plans oftentimes can meet the needs of your entire population. Maybe you push it up to four, but oftentimes I think we find that six, seven, there's diminishing returns. And oftentimes it's, it's, we're going in the, the wrong direction because it's come, become so confusing. Yeah, the, same, pri the private exchange never really got, it, it it never legs, took yeah, off. Yeah, I think what the private exchange did six years ago when Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Ed at the time said, look, private exchanges are gonna be 80% of, of how private employers offer benefits or deliver benefits, never came to fruition. What we learned is that the technology that private exchanges offered in order to allow choice, um, platforms like Liaison and B-Swift, et cetera, to manage that, that's what employees wanted, employers wanted. Yeah, yeah. Right? It wasn't the eight plan offerings. Right, right. So, so whittling it down to two, three, four medical plans, maybe a couple dental plan options, um, you know, life, disability, voluntary life, and then all the other ancillary things or voluntary programs that we talk about, like mm -hmm. pet insurance, accident, critical illness. So employees, you know, group legal, right? All mm -hmm. those types of things. So employees can have at least access to those programs. Yeah, legal, like a legal club. Yes, exactly. all these different value-add benefits. But then one of the other things to be on the lookout for is these value-add benefits. Like, do any of them, are, are they, um, are there compliance or regulatory issues as it relates to ERISA or HIPAA or the ACA and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, you, you, you've got to think about these things too as you expand your portfolio of, of benefits that you're offering your, your employees. What about the, what about the, you've, so you've got, Emily, you talked about, you know, you've got traditionalists and baby boomers who are now thinking about retirement and that they're going to become Medicare eligible. I mean, are there, um, do we need to, do we need to worry about, okay, do we need to offer a Medicare supplement, group Medicare sub kind of product to our employees who are, you know, on the verge of retirement? It's a good consideration. It's another one that you have to be very careful about. Yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to Medicare and retirement, um, you know, very, very, very important concept to make sure that you're educating about and providing education is perfectly okay to, you know, help someone prepare for the point in time in which they might retire. Um, you know, we should all be thinking about financial well-being and, and preparing for that time. But what you cannot do is coerce in any way an employee to not take your health plan in lieu of, um, or go towards Medicare in lieu of your employee health, employer health plan. So right. no, there are some really strict requirements around that. Mm -hmm. And before you offer any type of um, you know, supplemental or Medicare type offering, you really wanna consult with an expert um, yeah. because there are some severe penalties uh, to doing that. So you know, while I think that, you know, education about Medicare and education about preparedness for retirement is extremely important. Um, you also want to be very, very careful in terms of offering products or programs. Yeah. But education in and of itself is a benefit to, to your, to your employees, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, to show, Hey, look, we, we understand where you are in your life right now. And that, the, that this is probably top of mind for you. And we're going to help you with that by just bringing in some, you know, some, some educational tools and assistance. Yeah. And remember everything you do when it comes to employee education, has got to be fun to some extent. Right. And it's got to be targeted. Yeah. And so HR has got to see themselves as like marketers right. when it comes to educating employees, because you don't want to waste people's time. You want to do a lot of storytelling. You want to keep it in human language. You want to do frequent touches right. when people have limited attention spans.
clients. Yeah. So it's not these three, four, five hour seminars, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's uh, snippets. Yeah. Of, of information. It should involve like craft beers and whiskeys or something like that. Ex well. That's the fun part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, uh, so <laughs> what, what other sort of helpful tips do we have for providing benefits that employees mm -hmm. want? I would say, you know, um, for, from a tips and tricks standpoint, you definitely want to make sure that you're being very thoughtful and careful about implementing these things. So you certainly don't want to just, you know, listen to this podcast, go out, purchase, or, you know, work with a, a broker to procure 10 new things to add to your portfolio and poof, it's going to solve all the world's problems. You know, this is a, this is a process. It's something that you need to be very thoughtful about. Um, you know, many of these things you want to start thinking and planning for six months in advance, um, sometimes even longer. Um, you know, so the one, the one tip I would say is, you know, start by sitting down and having a really good strategic meeting about where you are today and where you want to be in two, three, four years from a benefit standpoint. Um, philosophically, uh, you know, in the market versus your com competitors, what your obstacles and challenges are and what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, from there, you start to create that roadmap on how you're going to solve these things because you can't do all of it overnight and in one year. Right, right, right. So stuff like, you know, how are we going to grow as an organization? How fast are we going to grow? What's our, their new employees going to look like? What's the, the makeup of those new employees? How are we going to attract them to us as an organization? All those types of things. And then, and then certainly for your in-force employees, I think, you know, a survey. And there's a bunch of different ways to survey employees. It could be paper, although I don't necessarily recommend that. It could be in-person questioning nonchalant. Or it could be, you know, getting the monkey, survey monkey involved and, and you know, asking short, concise questions about, what employees value with their with their benefits? I've done Survey Monkey, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's right, very, very, uh, very easy. I would agree with but that. But that's a good point, Jeff. right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good point, right? Ask people what they want. You know, if yeah. you want to know what your workforce wants and needs, why not ask? And you, you know? do it all the time, man. I mean, I know we we you know here in our office in Connecticut, we've got 45, 50 people here that sit here. We do surveys all the time, yeah. different things, whether it be mm -hmm. yeah. important stuff around. Um, you know, how we solicit feedback on what we do, really important stuff to whether we get bananas or more peanuts in the cafeteria. <laughs> it's right? a true story. <laughs> so surveying and yeah. just, yeah, asking them out. It's a very democratic sort of way to solicit feedback. But it also makes people feel like they had input. Empowering, And yeah. that they're valued. And, and no, there's no need to assume these days. It is so easy with technology. We're back to technology, but like it's so easy to ask. Mm-hmm. What's on, what's on your mind? What do you want? What's important to you? Yep. You know, the, and assumptions usually are, you know, the old adage, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's usually, it's a bad way to go. Great. Anything else before we, uh, before we wrap this up? No, I think we could talk about, it's a fun topic, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 um, I think we could talk about it all day, but I think we've hit on a lot of different things. So I'd be interested to see if we get any feedback in particular on this topic. And I think it'll continue to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, no question. That's for sure. Change. The one thing that's uh, constant is change. That's it. Yep. That's right. That's yep. it. Well, you guys are not going to get away without our rapid fire. We always like to conclude um, with, with each guest with some, some questions so we get to know you a little bit better. So I'm going to start. Uh, Eric, I'm going to start with you. You ready? This is really deep, deep stuff here. So The answer is 72. <laughs> All right. Chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Uh, chocolate. Favorite movie? 
uh, I was going to say Gone with the Wind because it just came up. So I'll just go with that. Really? No, I haven't. That even, was... I don't even know if I've seen it. So my favorite actual movie. Oh, I love Boondock Saints. I love Boondock Saints. What? Boondock Saints? Have you heard of that? It's like a low budget movie from the, I don't know, late 90s. Uh, about a couple of mobsters in, in Boston. Okay. Boondock Saints. All right. Watch it tonight, Friday. Okay. Uh, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Fly. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? Well, I was going to say professional baseball player, but that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, I'll take that. Maybe attempting to still be. Yeah, that. there yeah. you go. Okay, you'd be a baseball player. Failing so. baseball player. We'll add that to the title. No, not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and finally, the no, for you, what's the number one thing, 30 seconds, number one thing that employers should take away from this episode? I, I think the number one thing is to, to reframe the question of not if, but when, when it comes to making these changes. So sort of consolidate some of the things that we talked about today and then think, uh, don't frame it as if we're going to do some of the things we talked about, but when, at what cadence is it appropriate for you to do it at your respective organization and then a little bit of how. So I think that reframe, if not when, I would say that would be the take home. Oh, and let me just change that from baseball player to uh, uh, charter captain, like fisherman. You know, fisherman. Oh, yeah. perfect. <laughs> right? That's, right? That's me. Oh. That's yeah, okay. That's it. My mind doesn't work all that quick. So the rap doesn't <laughs> it's let It's Friday afternoon. That's I, right. I some slack. And this is not water in this water bottle. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, ready? I'm ready. You had a chance to already. I got to hear the questions. Yeah, so mm. Chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Vanilla. Favorite movie? I'm going to go with, oh man, I have so many favorite movies. Gone but, with so the wind so too? not yeah. gone with the wind, Eric. No, no. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna go with my favorite Christmas movie since we're coming upon that season, oh. and I'm going with Elf. I love oh, Elf. Yeah. They were talking about it on the radio this that. morning, and I was just reminiscing about how much I love that. It's that oh. movie turned 15 today. Oh, did it really? 15. Can you believe that? Hope you find your dad. <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> would you rather fly or be invisible? Fly for sure. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? Oh man, uh, I think. I would be, oh, I love what I do now. Uh, I really do. I don't think I would want to do anything else, Jeff. Wow, great How answer. about that for an great answer? Great answer. Uh, and your number one takeaway from this podcast. So I got the benefit of sitting here listening to this. And I, I think if I was taking away something, it would be if you're an employer right now, uh, today and listening to this podcast, I would, if I were you, think about your top talent right now. And if they were to leave tomorrow and you did an exit interview, what would they point out as something that you were lacking in your approach to employee benefits? You know, what, what do you need to solve or add or, or change within your package um, that would make that talent um, more satisfying? I like that answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, that's great. You can't change your answer. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I was going to talk that. You already changed one. You're not changing that one. All right, Emily and Eric, thank you for joining me on this on this episode, and uh, we had a good time, and I think it was informative for our listeners. So uh, thanks again. Uh, listen for more information on how your organization can embrace a multi generational workforce. Just be sure to con uh, to contact your local One Digital team, and, and we can help you out. Uh, and if you like this episode, please leave us a review. And as always, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. Uh, you want to make sure that you're the first to know when the next episode drops. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeff Cross, and this has been another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits in HR.